Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. All right, guys, welcome to today's show. And joining me on the show today is a guy named Brian. Now, Brian hunts in Michigan on his family farm, and he's been hunting there for quite a while. But the amount of mature deer that he's been seeing, the age structure that he's seeing right now, is not what it used to be. I mean, he used to see year and a half olds, and now he's only pursuing four and a half year old deer and older. And there are a lot of tips and tricks that he's going to share with us today. And things that are very unconventional, things that you won't hear on most of the hunting media, uh, the TV shows, YouTube channels, other podcasts. And so go into this with an open mind because there are going to be some things that he says that are probably going to challenge everything you've been taught about white-tailed deer hunting. And I'm super pumped about it because there are things that I've been looking into lately and that I've been trying for myself here in Missouri on the property that I hunt. So I'm pumped about this one. I Hopefully you guys can tell, but I am so excited to pick his brain to find out exactly what he's doing and how he's able to land so many amazing deer. So let's jump in. Like he was doing things that were just badass. That was one of the coolest moments of my life. I was really scared, but knowing that Dan had the gun, I did have the rifle, like we would be okay. All right, guys, welcome to today's show. And on the show with me today, I've got Brian Dunlap and Brian is from Michigan. And I'm really excited about this podcast because just the answers to your questionnaire, Brian, were very intriguing talking about how how you go about hunting a totally different way, even though you're hunting a pretty highly pressured state. Um, and then even before we started the recording, mentioning how many deer you've taken and how many of those are bucks. So uh, before we jump into all that great content, I got to say, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Why don't you start by sharing with the listeners a little bit about yourself, maybe how you got into hunting and fishing in the outdoors. All right. Well, yeah, well, it's the same, same story as most. My father got me into hunting when I was real young and that, that, uh, was a lot of fishing when I was younger and then the hunting, anything from small game to turkey to white tail and the white tail is really, really where I found my roots in hunting, man. That's, that's what I love to do. And it's only grown on me over the years. I still, still get out and do some fishing and I still do some turkey hunting. I'd rather just call for others, but the the whitetail hunting definitely consumes me all year long, and I, I just can't seem to get enough of it. Pretty much, a, I'm a freak about it. That, that's um, awesome. Um, so you started out pretty young. When did when did the big switch to like being primarily a whitetail hunter take place? Oh, probably in my later teen years, t- started turning more to just the white tails. I was pretty consumed into the t- 
turkeys and everything early on too. But I mean, the, the love for hunt whitetail started immediately. I killed my first deer when I was 12 and, uh, that was, she was a doe and it was pretty cool. My dad, my dad got me into hunting and he, you know, took me out when I was young, showed me the way and taught me about wind and, but he didn't hold my hand for me like a lot of fathers do. He kind of just let me do it on my own. I hung my first tree stand when I was 12. Uh, you know, picked a spot on my own, went out all by myself, hung it up. And, uh, that that spot didn't end up working out for me to, to kill my first deer there. It was about a couple weeks into the season, and I asked Dad, and I had been waiting for a buck, but I asked Dad if I could shoot a doe, and he said, well, we'll go go ahead. And I had been seeing a doe on the other side of the field from where I'd been hunting every evening. And uh, I made over went over there and made a little makeshift ground blind one evening. And uh, sure enough, like like the book wrote, she come she come down that tree line like she did every night. And <laughs> I shot her, and uh, that that was the beginning of it all right there. Um, I can't remember. I can get, I think I was 13 when I shot my first buck. Funny, okay. I can't remember that. I remember the buck, and I remember it happening. <laughs> but I, I, I don't remember exactly. It was a three-point, though, just just barely over the Michigan 11-point. <laughs> it was a spike <laughs> with a little sticker on it, you know. And, uh, and my first years of hunting pretty much consisted of bucks mostly like that. They got a little bigger, but they didn't get any older. That's for sure. I killed, I don't know, six or seven year and a half old bucks to start out my hunting hunting career, if you want to call it that, at a at a young age and uh and that stayed the same as how I how I explained how it started. I pretty much did it all on my own. I hung always hung all my own tree stands on the farm and uh just watched it all happen and, and learn learn from my mistakes and what i was seeing you know yeah and i think that that part really helped me out in the future uh, i kind of worry about how i'm treating my children with the hunting and i kind of hold their hand and <laughs> <laughs> want them to have the best success they can you know and, and i watched the farm real well so i put them here and there instead of let them figure out themselves maybe i'm hurting them i don't know but uh yeah, man. Uh, so like I said, we started out the early years on the farm here. We, we didn't even see anything older than a year and a half. And that was, we were, we were happy if we killed an eight point year and a half, you know, that was an eight point. That was, that was something cool. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then that was pretty normal for the area. There wasn't much, you know, every, every couple of years or so, one of the guys in the neighborhood would shoot a nice two and a half or something. And that, that'd be a giant buck <laughs> for us at that time. And, but over the years, things things kind of changed. I I hunted with my dad, my mom, a buddy's dad, or my dad's buddy, and my cousin. We we all hunted the farm back back years ago, and uh, like I said, we didn't. I didn't even see anything over a year and a half in them in them early days, and I don't know. I think I was probably about. 17 years old and my cousin he moved to texas 
And my cousin, he worked construction, and his boss was a hunter, so he got, he got a lot of time to hunt during hunting season. I was pretty jealous of him every time I was on my way to school on the bus, and I'd drive by and see his uh, truck parked in the front of the field, and <laughs> I'm on my way to school, and he's going out there to shoot shoot bucks, you know. And yeah. Um, but when he when he moved out of town, he uh, the the very next year, I. I seen my first two and a half year old buck. I started seeing more deer. I started seeing bigger deer and a, a couple. I mean, I wasn't seeing two and a half run all over the place, but it, it was kind of like the light bulb that clicked. I always wanted, you know, there's a few guys in the community who shot good bucks every year. And man, I, <laughs> I just wanted to be like them. Yeah. I want <laughs> nothing other than to kill them big bucks like them guys, you know? Yeah. So it was kind of like that was the light bulb. My cousin left, and in just one year, all of a sudden, I'm seeing bigger bucks than what I've ever seen before. But he killed the nicest two year and a half old eight points on the farm every year. So that just that was like the light bulb. Like I said, that clicked with me. Wow, man! Just one one person left. And two deer out of the neighborhood lived, and man, I. I prospered from it the very first year you know yeah and you know i had the mentality before that like hey you can't pass these deer up we got so many hunters in the area i think we just tallied up an opening day of gun season on my dad's block there would be in between 30 and 35 hunters wow so the idea of anything making it through that orange army was just ridiculous. You know, <laughs> you, you wouldn't think anything would live through it. But like I said, I, my cousin left in the first year, I all of a sudden seen bigger bucks. And so I said, well, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to try my best. I'm not going to shoot any more year and a half old bucks. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see what I can do. And I was pretty good about it. I slipped up two more times. I think, in that transition from shooting year and a half to two and a half. So I shot a couple more and it's been pretty consistent all the way through the ranks. I try to keep it to four and a half now, but I've proven I've got a little Michigan in me still. And every once in a while I'll, I'll kill something a little, a little smaller than what I thought it was. But, uh, for what, the most part, uh, what's that? What, what kind of, um, property are you hunting? I know you've referenced the farm several times. Um, would you mind sharing kind of what the layout is and maybe how many acres it is that you're hunting? Yep. So I grew up on an 80 acre farm and now it's 200, um, four years ago now for me, almost five, four and a half years ago now, my dad bought 110 acres behind his 80. Okay. So we got, uh, it's actually 88. So we're just shy of 200 now. Nice. And, uh, that's, that's, that's been wonderful. <laughs> I mean, I was pretty, pretty blessed to grow up on the 80 that I did. It's, uh, we're in an agricultural area, and, uh, but our farm's pretty decently split up. The 80 was probably just shy of 40 of woods and, thicker ground and the other half ag ground okay and that that's pretty consistent now too with the the new farm uh we got 
almost 200 acres and a hundred of its tillable. So the rest is all uh, pretty good habitat. Yeah. That's awesome to have that split. I know the, the property that I'm hunting here in Missouri, um, I wish I had a bigger chunk of woods. I really do. There's a lot of pasture. Um, there's a Creek bottom, but they actually are cutting out all of the woods on the Creek bottom right now, which I'm not super pumped about, but it's not my property and they just want it to look the way it did when they were growing up out there. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. for the most part, I mean, it's real small chunks of woods, like maybe five acres in one spot, I think close to seven in another. And then, um, the Creek bottom, which used to be a little bit bigger chunk of woods, but now it's, it's going to be nothing but pasture with a Creek running through it. So I, I think growing up hunting the woods up in Wisconsin, um, you know, I'm just right across Lake Michigan from you guys, but growing up hunting hardwoods in lots of acorn tree or oak trees with acorns dropping, um, the rolling hills, to me that always screamed whitetail habitat. And I know a lot of people right. like the bean fields and the corn fields or alfalfa or whatever that might be, but I I always have a hard time getting away from hunting the woods. You know, you know, I, uh, we got a pretty good section of woods. One, the biggest chunk of woods is probably, like I said, just shy of 40 acres. And then on the new farm, there's some smaller chunks kind of spread out. And, uh, I spent a lot of time in the woods when I was younger, but when I got older and got further into management and more knowledgeable with habitat, I started staying out a lot more. Stay out of the edge and leave them their spot and be real safe about it. And, you know, the, the, the normal aspect of, of hunting, you know, from the book, we stay out of there. I picked up a couple other farms in the neighborhood to, to spread my hunting out. So I didn't pressure one spot too much. And that was, that was my first step out of just shooting any whole year and a half that walked by and actually trying to manage. And, and, uh, and that worked good for me. I was pretty darn successful with that. It's quite a bit different than the way I hunt now, but it worked. And definitely, uh, if anybody's involved with social media and here's a lot of hunting stories that, it's proven that there's definitely more than one way to skin a cat when it comes to killing whitetails. Yeah. And there's lots of people extremely successful in many different ways, sometimes all in the same area too. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting. I mean, I feel like there's generations of hunters that grew up hearing about like, this is the way you do it. You have to spray down with every type of scent killer you've ever seen, you know, as extreme as, getting washing and dry or washers and dryers just for your hunting clothes to I've heard other people that do absolutely no scent control and they play the wind. And that's kind of more of the camp that I fall in. Now I've got the luxury of hunting a property where there's not much pressure, but I do get out there all the time. And I've, I've tried to adopt the idea of, you know, the more I'm out there, the more used to human presence the deer are going to get. Um, I, exactly. I've, I've noticed they, they don't care at all. If someone's in there cutting timber out with a chainsaw, they'll be in there 15 minutes after the truck pulls away. As soon as the combine's done running, or if 
or if the cattle farmer's out dumping hay, like the deer just get used to certain types of movement. And so I've adopted that mindset. Some people call me crazy and I guess I haven't killed a lot of, a lot of deer that way yet. Um, but I've only recently adopted that tactic. So we'll see how it plays out. Well, I think you should definitely stick with it and grow on that because that's pretty much the same way I look at it now too. And you're in what you say a little less pressured areas. What you feel is that is that what you said? It's not extremely pressured. Yeah, I mean, there's a good amount of pressure in Missouri, but the property that I hunt specifically, um, it's a large chunk, and there's not a lot of people that hunt around it. In fact, there's as far as I know, and there could be people that kind of sneak in here and there, um, to the north, east, and west of me, there's not a single person that hunts an adjacent property. Now, part of that is that it's not really the best property for hunting. Um, like one is just a wide open cattle pasture to the north, to, to the east is also cattle pasture, and then uh, a couple houses, and to the west is actually a big cornfield which i wish i could hunt but um the other part of the west side the west border is is houses and then to the south is where there's one hunter and it's about 400 acres south of me um it's a big river bottom heavy timber and then it drops down into ag fields and so literally i mean i'm most days when i go out i'm probably the only person hunting for a half mile around me, maybe more. Nice. That's, that's awfully nice. Yeah. That's nothing you experience here in Michigan. No, no. And that's everybody hunts. Yeah. That's completely opposite of what I grew up experiencing in Wisconsin. I mean, we hunted four, uh, we hunted 40 acres and I bet you at the peak, we probably had 13 people hunting that 40 acres. And I mean, mm-hmm. it was, it was, like I said, thick timber rolling hills. And so you could, you could almost sit and not see another person. You would know where they are. You would know exactly what tree they're sitting in or what, where they've got their five gallon bucket flipped over on the ground, sitting on it. Um, but the terrain just offered so much cover and there would still be deer that somehow snuck through that 40 acres without being spotted by a person. It's amazing, isn't it? They're <laughs> yeah, masters is. at using the train. They're master navigators. Yep. It's it's amazing here. Like I said, I think that might have been in the when we talked before we got rolling here, but uh opening day on on my dad's block we'd have right around thirty to thirty five hunters in one square mile. Dang. Of opening day of shotgun season. Now, bow season is a, is a lot better in Michigan. In fact, I put all my money on bow season. And I haven't killed a deer with a gun in over 10 years now. And not because I'm against gun hunting or have a problem with it. I don't have a problem at all shooting a deer with a gun. It's just I'll see more bucks in one morning of bow hunting than I will the entire gun season every year. Yeah. So just the, the odds are, are a lot better. And I mean, 
with, there's lots of pressure once the bullets start flying here in Michigan. So it's like they've got that I, internal I, clock. They know exactly when opening morning is, and the deer activity just shuts off. It seems like. Oh, for sure, and they get warning too. I mean, you walk around the weekend before any opening day. You know, if I go out and walk around the farm, all you can hear is gunshots. Yep. Everybody's sighting in their gun, you know, two days before first season starts. And I don't know. I think that after after they've had a few bullets thrown at them, they, they, <laughs> they pick up on the, the warnings, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, that's, that's really cool. I, I, I didn't know that about your hunting, and I didn't know your, your, your strategies or whatnot of your whitetail hunting and that I – I'm interested to get further into this conversation because that sounds like you you're kind of going at it the same way I do. It's, it's kind of funny. You, you hear a lot of hunters talk about the old farmer who can walk around out on his farm anywhere, and the deer will just stand there and watch them. But they'll never say I could do that myself, hunting it. You know, it's, yeah. It, I don't know. It's kind of funny to me, but I understand. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, talking crap about anybody you know I, I was the same way when I when I first started getting into hunting bigger bucks I did it the real safe way like I was saying I picked up more farms in the neighborhood and in, in the community and I spread everything out and I tried not to tried not to overpressure any one spot and you know my my better spots I'd save for later in the season and uh I think trail cameras were a big part of how all that transitioned to um, when I find a deer that I wanted, I, uh, oh, what was I getting at there? I got kind of lost on where I was going there. (laughs) I'm good at doing that. Oh, no, you're good. But, uh, uh, what the heck? But, uh, anyways, uh, we're we're talking about the the if the, the deer that get used to you yeah. being out on the farm. So, anyways, let's let's step back a little bit, a little further, and talk about the the norm or the earlier days of hunting. Yet, and let's graduate up to where we're at now. So, I shot some nice bucks for a few years. Shot a couple two and a half. And then I first finally shot my first three and a half. I think I was 19, 19 years old. And man, I was sitting out there. It was November 6th and the rut was pumping pretty good. And this, uh, I, I had an eight point come in darn nice. Eight point. He had, uh, 10 inch G twos and, a little bit of spindler, but he's 120 inch racks. What he ended up being, and uh, that, that sucker come running in chasing a doe, and it was just the biggest deer I've ever seen in my life. I <laughs> didn't even count points. I thought I had 10, maybe 12 points, <laughs> and, uh, and until I walked up on him, I really had no idea what he was. But I was awfully excited when that happened, and there, there was another another point in the hunting career where it's like, man, this things keep on getting better here. I bet you maybe, maybe I could stop shooting these two and a half and I'd have more of these three and a halfs around, you know? And so that started and 
So in the next few years, I start shooting some three and a half year old bucks and man, it just, every year that I decided I was going to take that next step, I'd accomplish that goal. And I think a big part of that is, is, you know, you're never going to be any better in life than what you think you can be. Yeah. I don't never think I can shoot any better than a two and a half. That's probably all I'm ever going to, you know, cause it, who are you going to see first? Most likely on a general, generally in a season, some two and a half year old bucks or a three and a half. You'd probably yeah. see the stupid two and a half running around earlier. Right. Oh yeah. You shoot one of them two and a halfs and yeah, we got two tags here in Michigan, but you get a buck under your belt and then you all of a sudden catch yourself slacking a little bit. Maybe missed a hunt for a football game or something, you know, or whatever you're into. And, so I think that uh, that's another thing that really turned a light bulb on in my head is, you know, I, if all I got to do is believe I can do this and my golly, it, it seems to work out. Of course, there's a lot more involved than that. But uh, so I shot a couple more two and a half in that time and era where I was trying to cut back and just stick to the three and a half. And, uh, then over a certain amount of time, I, I never thought it in my life. And, you know, the first three and a half year old I shot, I, I said, man, I, I'll never be able to stop shooting these three and a half, you know, but sure enough, graduated the four and a half. But right about that time when I started when I shot that first three and a half, that's when the trail cameras started getting hot. Mm-hmm. I've been running trail cameras for about 15 years now. Shoot, my first trail camera was a was a 35 mil that you had to set out there and then go get the film and take it all the way into Walmart and wait for it to get <laughs> developed. And it gets developed and you got 20-some pictures of a branch waving, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, that definitely progressed. And, you know, the digital cameras come out, and that that was a lifesaver because I don't know if I'd ever figured it out going back and forth to Walmart every time. (laughs) But that's when – that that was the beginning of me starting to target specific bucks. Before that point, I never even seen a buck – before the time that I shot him, every, every, every buck I ever killed before that point was, was the first time I ever seen it. And, you know, you started TV started, we started seeing more TV, hunting on TV about that time. And, uh, it was really cool to me how people could watch these certain bucks and go out and kill this, this buck, this one buck that they were after. And that was just, unreal to me because like i said never even seen one before the before i shot it i started getting a little better with them cameras and figuring out where to put them and keep them out of them low-hanging branches and (laughs) um i i got i got picture of uh i had pictures of uh what I figured to be two, three and a half year old bucks one was an eight point one was a nine point that year and I really wanted to get after that nine point, but he disappeared come come October. But that eight point was still around. And I uh, I have this stand. It's only about sixty yards off the road. I've got this small, probably only four acre woods right up on the road. 
And uh, I, I slipped into that one evening. One of my favorite stands. It's only 60 yards off the road, like I said. But, man, it's awesome. You just don't, you don't bother a thing getting into it. Yeah. And it's a crossing spot. So, you know, it's, it's a good area. And uh, I was sitting there and a nice eight point come across the road and made its way up underneath me. And as he was coming in, I didn't really think he was something I wanted to shoot. And he got right underneath me in a spot where I just barely see him because of some uh, smaller saplings that grew up under the bigger tree I was in. And I'm looking through all these little holes at him, and I realize, well, shoot, that's that's my number one hit list buck, <laughs> my first hit list buck. Holy cow, you know. And uh, so I was able to get a shot off at him. That was kind of a that was a wild one. He, uh, I ended up hitting him a little bit high, and he he ran quite a ways. And I ended up having to put uh, two more arrows in him throughout oh, wow. uh, about a four-hour tracking period not the way i i like to do it of course but uh it was uh definitely it definitely didn't lack excitement yeah (laughs) we kicked him up i think seven times that night but anyways that was my first hit list buck and since then i've i don't know the number but i've shot as i don't know at least 10 10, maybe 12 bucks now that uh, was the buck I was after. That's awesome. I've been pretty good over the years now with being able to pick out one certain buck, go after that one buck, and, and accomplish shooting them. And the next year, I and I got a lot of pictures of that eight point that year, and I had a lot of intel on them. I knew exactly where to spend my time, and that worked out good. And that's, that's about the normal scenario ever since then too but the very next year it was uh october 3rd and (laughs) i i wasn't real i didn't have nothing any really good intel on anything but i did get one picture one time of one good buck and the wind was right to go in and hunt this spot and this is luck might be as (laughs) darn lucky the first time in shot that buck that night october 3rd that's awesome which uh the beginning of october has turned into probably my favorite time to to target a buck i mean they're still on the feeding patterns they're not pressured up and really keen to what's going on yet and i love it i love the first week of october the last week of october and the last week of january are my favorite times to hunt hunt big bucks and I, I like the rut the rut's fun you know we know we love the rut excitement but when it comes to killing big bucks i i don't personally like the rut yeah I, as much as i watch what goes on around here and all year long with cameras and glassing and just being out on the farm paying attention i I'd much rather I'd put my money on the first week of October, or the last week of October, over the rut any year. Yeah, the but, I've been burned by the rut a couple times, and tip. I mean, here in Missouri, the the rifle season lands basically um, in the rut, and so I lose a lot of deer that I've 
watched on trail camera all throughout the year to to opening day of rifle season. And so I'm like, man, it's just tough when they're when they're not predictable, when they're moving off their pattern, when they're chasing does, you know, two miles down a creek bottom, there's no telling who's gonna get a shot at it or if you'll ever even exactly. see it. Exactly. I mean, you, you, it's definitely not saying the rut isn't a good time to be in the woods and, you know, you can hunt pinch points and areas in between bedding and whatnot, and you can have a lot of luck there, but I'm pretty, pretty much into targeting one specific buck every year. Usually in our area, there isn't any more than one buck that I'd like to kill. And that's, that's, that's just, the normal scenario anyways i uh so so the specific boxes that's that's what really gets me now i I really i really like picking out the one deer and going after that deer i feel that's that's pretty good accomplishment and uh so I kept on, I kept on the cameras and kept on improving and started to learn a lot more about habitat after, after that and food plots and hinging and all, all that good stuff. But, uh, the food plot game really, really blew up my hunt. It really did. It, uh, you, you know, if you have the ability on a farm to create Oh, uh, a habitat that that has everything for these deer, food, and cover, and whatnot. I mean, it's you can really you can really persuade you know persuade these deer to be where you want them to be. It's kind of like kind of like a bait pile. I, I don't think that baiting and food plotting are too too different, too far from each other, really. Yeah. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. I, you know, it, I've never put a f- pile of corn out, but I've had the ability to, you know, put in a two acre food plot here and there. So, you know, not much different, but my food plot game definitely, definitely stepped up. And I like to put my food plots in areas where, where deer already travel, you know, I like to find areas in between bedding or just out of bedding where deer normally hit a field and I'll just pick a little small half acre spot in a corner of a field where the where the crops didn't grow and I'll throw a little food plot in there if, if that's the area where I think that buck's going to be that year and I'll spend a lot of time there and usually able to make it happen what yeah what are you so, um what are you putting in for food plots in comparison to the crops that are already growing. I mean, are you just doing stuff that they can't find on neighboring farms? Exactly. I don't, I want to have something different than that. I mean, they have numerous corn and bean fields around and I, I don't really want to show them the same thing. I've definitely seen deer target different foods throughout the season and I want to have something on my farm for all all times of the season. And my food plots themselves, they started out normal. I'd have a clover plot here and a, maybe a mix of three different things over here, like some chicory, some brassica, and some clover in this one, and, and spread it out like that. But now I'm, I like to plant everything I can find in one food plot. 
Okay. Go usually I go here in Michigan. They got a family farm and home, which is like a TSC, and they have a deal where you can go in there and pick all your own seeds, put them in bags yourself, and, and I usually go in there and buy everything they have, buy every seed they have, and mix every seed I can buy into one food plot, and then I know throughout the year. There's going to be, at all times, there's going to be something in that food plot that that deer is eating on. And I watch them pick around everything throughout the different times of the year. Like early in the season, I notice they really like things like that dwarf X of, dwarf F, X, I can't say it, rape anyways, the dwarf X, six rape. And, you know, they really like to eat on that and the clover and, They'll eat, you know, they'll go right by the brassica and whatnot, stick their head right past it and come out with a big chunk of clover and chicory. And then a little later in the season, they'll start eating the big old leaves on the, on the, uh, brassica. And, you know, and then later season, they start eating the turnips and radishes. And so that's, that's kind of my idea. And it's worked out real well for me. I like plant everything I find in one, one food plant alfalfa to wheat to rye chicory clover radishes turnips everything anything you could think of as a food plot seed and i'll turn up that spot and i'll cult the packet and i'll broadcast all the bigger seed on it then i'll cult the packet again and i'll broadcast all the smaller seed on it and then I'll call to pack it one more time. That's just so I can get the bigger seed down in there a little further. And then uh, the smaller seed over top because that doesn't go quite as deep. And, man, that's been really successful for me. I've really noticed how back before I did that, how the deer would hit different food plots harder through different times of the year that had the different food plot seed in it. Now that I have everything in one food plot, I have deer hit them all year long because there's constantly something in there they want. That's that's really cool. So, I've heard of I've heard of people doing different food plots, like you know having having brassicas in one spot and, and something different in a, in another. But I've also watched a lot more of these mixed mixed food plots going in, and even at the store now. Like I went out and bought seed. I want to say two years ago. And the local hardware store had their own blend. And they said the whole idea behind it was that you could basically, like something in it would grow in any environment, whether you have a lot of sun, a lot of shade, um, a cooler, more damp area, a higher, more dry area. And they're like, this is kind of our way for a first-time food plot person to have success growing something. Not everything in the blend is going to grow based on where you put it, but you will get something out of it. And so what, how, how are you, aside from picking spots where the deer are already traveling, is there anything else that you're looking for? I mean, I know you'd mentioned a field edge. Um, do you do, do you do some like deep in cover? Uh, I guess you did, you did mention doing some close to bedding areas, but are you doing, are you doing food plots like in thick woods or is it more, more out on field edges more out on field edges uh, i do unless the cameras tell me i have to be i still 
try to kind of stay out of the timber as much as I can until the rut anyways. But uh, I do have one one pretty good size interior food plot in, inside the woods. And But the way I built that is to set them up to come out to me on the food plots I have on the outside of the woods. So I got a bedding area and I hinged a little bit of trees in there and it was always thick before that anyways. I'm just trying to keep it that way. And the center of the food plot is pretty big. And then heading out in one direction towards where I hunt on the edge, I made a trail and made that food plot all the way out to the edge, just the trail itself. And then I did the exact same thing in the opposite direction on the edge where I hunt. So, and I also dug a water hole down there. So they have food, water, and bedding all in one spot. And then they have a nice big wide open trail with food on it to browse on their way to the more desired food. The interior food plot, I really only put clover in it. Um, clover grows in about any condition. And it, most of the other things I plant in a food plot won't grow in the low light scenario. But uh, so anyways, I, I plant that trail in each direction food plot. So the deer just have something to browse along and it points them in my direction. And I try to do that with most of my food plots, no matter where they are. I won't always just make a circle or a square. I'll take the two areas that they're either going to come in and out of that food plot, most likely. And I'll make, I'll narrow it up into a trail eight foot, 10 foot wide, point them in the direction to where I'm going to be. That's been really successful for me too. Deer, I mean, deer are like rats. They follow hard edges, you know, Mm -hmm. they, they, you, you give them a, you give them an easier trail with some food on it that they can browse on, on their way down and that they're going to use it. So that's been something pretty successful for me too is, being creative about the shape of the plot. It's amazing how just the shape of the plot can direct the deer in the direction that you want it to go. Yeah. So let's say you hunt on the east side of a plot and the deer normally come in from the west side of the plot. So I'd, I'd like to uh, shape that food plot in like a teardrop shape with the big end being in where they enter the food plot, let's say a corner of a field, right? Let's say I want to sit out in a swale. This is kind of a scenario that I do have. I say I want to sit in a swale that's about sixty yards out from this corner that they hit this field. So I'll make it. I'll make the food plot the shape of a teardrop, and the the big fat end of the teardrop will be where they enter the food plot, and I'll be sitting on the point of the teardrop. And it's amazing how them deer will all funnel right to where you at, right to where you're at. Man, that and I really like. I re- what's that? That that makes perfect sense. I mean, to use the structure and the shape of your food plot to funnel deer naturally right to you. <laughs> they'll use it too. They'll they'll follow either each edge right around to the point, or they'll go right through the center to the point but they want to cover the whole distance of it. They don't want to just skip by a corner of it. And it's, it's amazing how it filters it right to them. And that, that spot I'm talking about, it's, it's, I love it. It's one of my favorite spots. It's a swale. Like I said, it's about 60 yards out from the corner. 
So I'm about 50 yards from one edge and 40 yards from the woods edge. And the, the other edge is a uh, tree line. Okay. And uh, yeah, I, I really like that because, man, field edges are hard to hunt. Mm-hmm. And deer hit deer, you know, 20, 30 yards before they hit a field edge. And 10, 15 yards after they've got out in the field, they're about as, an, as alert as they're going to be. They're looking for everything, smelling for anything, and being in a corner also creates a lot of issues with winds. You get a lot of swirling in a corner, whether it's blowing into that corner, which isn't really normal because then you'd be blowing into the timber, the bedding in most scenarios, even if it's blowing over it, like uh, from the bedding, seems to dump over and kind of swirl in corners i've had lots of issues with so i like getting out in them swales if you can 60 yards or so away from where they enter the field and by the time they get into shooting range they've calmed down let their guard down a little bit and they're just feeding and that's that's been a great setup scenario for me too yeah that sounds that sounds awesome i I really want to do more habitat improvement and more food plots where I'm at. Uh, the one big issue is that there's a guy that rents or leases the land for cattle and crops already. So there's about 80 acres of soybeans on the property that I hunt. Um, and then the neighbor has corn. And I've mentioned to him a couple times like, hey, how would you feel about me basically paying for a chunk of the field? and put a food plot in it and he's like man i'm already putting your food plot in i'm putting two giant food plots in for you and i'm like well yeah i understand that but you know the beans aren't there all season long and they're definitely not there all year long and so i've i've dabbled with food plots here and there um really a lot of it has been in the woods but i think this year i'm going to contact the landowner and see about doing more edge habitat improvement and maybe some uh, some food plots right now where the woods currently are on the edge, but maybe taking a couple of the mature trees out, getting more light onto that onto that woodlot and field um, boundary, and see if I can't get some food along the edge right there that's going to last actually all year long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's tough when you start dealing with farmers like that. Uh, I, I do know that insurance, is, their crop insurance and stuff is sometimes an issue on why they, they don't want to come off an acre or two for a guy in a corner. Yep. Or maybe that's just an excuse that farmers like to give out because yeah. they don't want to give up any ground. Yeah. But one way around that, because we, we lease out the 100 acres of tillable here on our farm, one way I've found to capitalize in this situation is it, it, usually most farms anyways, my farm is, I don't know about the one you hunt, but there's always some water spots in a farm farm field that don't really grow. Yep. I don't know if you have areas like that, but uh, if, if, I, if my uh, trail cameras and my scouting is, showing me that you know this is a certain area that i'm most likely going to be able to kill this buck this year and there's a couple of them watered out spots in a field in that area 
I'll take that little half acre area or however big it is. Sometimes I've had up to three acres and plant a food plot right in that water spot. And, you know, that, that ground's normally fertilized pretty good. And the farmers that farm my ground like it when I do that because it helps keep the weeds down and it's a lot easier to kill off that food plot seed than it is the giant weeds that would grow there if, if I didn't do so. Yeah. And that's worked out really good for me, too. I've actually killed a couple of the biggest bucks that I've killed on food plots like that that were just a not you know it don't even happen every year and it's in different spots on some years and whatnot and uh, that's been one way i get around that anyways you know food plot doesn't have to be a designation every year maybe because of your uh because of the information you have in a certain area on that year maybe it works out this year maybe it doesn't on another you know yeah but anyways that's that's been one thing that i do in them situations just plant them little little spots. It's amazing how you put a little half acre food plot in this, you know, being out in the center of a field wouldn't be the greatest thing. It'd be hard to hunt. Hmm. But uh, you, you put a little food plot of something different in the middle of a bean or a cornfield. It's amazing how the deer congregate to that spot and, and find that spot in the field almost every night on feeding, you know, every night that they're in that field. But, uh, yeah. Are you, are you using, when you're setting up on these food plots, are you typically in a tree stand? Are you doing like a saddle or do you have ground blind setups as well? Typically, uh, typically I'm in a tree stand, Okay, but every scenario is a little different. Um, and like I said, I, I target one certain small area and hit that one area really hard to get after the buck I'm after. And, uh, so typically, uh, I, I'm in a tree stand. I'm that's, that's what I like to spend my time in, but I, I will, I have no problem hunting off the ground with a bow. In fact, I've killed through, Two or three. I've killed three deer off the ground with a bow. Two of them have been bucks. Nice. And man, it's exciting being on the <laughs> ground with a bow. It's just something different than being on the ground with a gun. Just it the deer seem twice as big as what they what they really are and it's just, just extremely exciting. But uh I throughout most of my hunting i've i've been a tree stand guy a pre-hung guy i like to be all set up and ready to go but that all changed here over the last couple of years i've made a big move into being mobile i bought a a good mobile setup uh i like it a lot i i the last couple of years even on my home farm here i've found myself in my mobile setup almost every set and i like it a lot it, it it not only helps you it not only helps you put yourself on the deer but it helps me hunt this a lot of the same areas with different winds sometimes you only have to be about 40 40 30 40 yards off your your pre-hung you got there to make the wind work on a certain evening you know yeah i like to push my limit with my wind i definitely always i'm always conscious of it but uh, I will push the limit. I I will cut it, you know, just off of, just off the mark, you know. 
So, yeah, I, I agree with that a hundred percent. I've noticed that on, I would say four out of my last five bucks that I've killed with my bow, the wind has almost been completely in their favor, but maybe five to 10 degrees off. And so when I watch yep. them coming in, I'm just thinking, man, that wind just needs to change a little bit and they are going to bust me before they get in range. But I'm, I'm lucky and fortunate to, I've hung my stand in a spot, I should say, that it's got a very consistent wind. I'm right on a field edge. I'm one tree in from the edge uh, of the woods. And it just always seems like it's blowing close to completely to the west, um, maybe a little bit south, uh, southwest. And so the deer seem to come from <laughs> almost perfectly downwind of me, but where they are crossing the fence is only about 50 yards. They're crossing from the neighbor's property about 50 yards from me. And uh, I don't keep my stand very high. I'm, I've never been one to set up, you know, 20, 30 feet up. I bet you the, the platform on my stand this year was 12 feet off the ground. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe not even, but somehow I get away with it. And the deer, they'll work right up that edge. And if they were to walk five feet closer to the woods, they'd bust me. Um, but it, it just, I kind of found a sweet spot there and I can't say that I've found any other spot on the property that works as good as that one does. All right, guys, I need to take a quick second to tell you about a product that I've been using for quite a while now. It's called bull elk beard oil. If you've spent any amount of time in the outdoors, whether it's on the mountain, in the marsh or in the woods, you've felt the effects of the wind, the sun and the cold on your face. What this product does, it helps you look better, feel more confident, and it helps your beard keep its moisture. Not to mention, it smells great, so now my wife can't complain as much after I come home from a long week of elk hunting. Now I need to tell you, I've gotten to know Brian the founder over the past couple months, and he is an awesome guy. Brian made sure that all of these oils are made out of clean products right here in the USA. He also loves to give back to the outdoor community whether that's through fundraisers for public land acquisitions or even helping donate money to cover the surgery cost of duck dogs. He's an amazing guy and he makes an amazing product. So go check out bullelkbeardoil.com and be sure to check out the subscription options so that you don't have to run out of your favorite facial hair product. Plus, you can use the code NOMADIC and get 20% off your order. You know, yeah, I, uh, I, I like, I'm, I'm the same way. I like setting up that, that wind. I, I guess, I guess it ain't, it ain't something I try to set up for, but I'm, I'm going to go to where I, the area I need to be in every possible chance I can get away with it. So if it is just cutting real close, I'm going to take my chances and I'm going to be there. And, then I, like I was getting at, I, that's where hunting mobiles, man, that's been a, a great deal for me because I can hunt, hunt the same 10 acre area, let's say from numerous different positions and, and keep my wind, you know, out of where the deer are going to be crossing or coming through. And it, it's been a great tool. I, uh, I never, never thought I'd want to deal with it. I always, up until the last couple of years, I've had all my pre-stand, my stands hung 
well before season and <clears throat> you know hunting your hunting your own farm that's that's an easy thing to do and it, it one would think it would be the 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 best way to go at it and and I still do have my pre-hungs and I and I like on most mornings to hunt my pre-hungs but uh in the evening I really like to move around with the the mobile setup now and man I just thought it was going to be such a pain in the butt when I was starting to get into it having to hang this tree stand every time I go out and having to carry it out there with me and I uh two years ago I didn't have anything around on the farm that uh that I wanted to shoot so I dove into public for the first time ever and man it wasn't only about a week or so into season I really started to get a good rhythm on getting up the tree and it just uh, I still told myself man I st- I'm, I'm not doing this on the farm though I my pre-hungs are nice they're where I want to be and man just after a season of of hunting out of that hang or the mobile set up there I, I I fell in love with it and I got it down real good I'm one time up and one time back down I got a good system down it takes me about 12 minutes to usually put myself into between 16 and 18 foot and I'm like you I I like to be as low as I can for the cover that I have where I'm hunting yeah. If I have to be 20 feet and that's as far as I'd ever go, uh, I will. But if I could be eight foot, I'll do it. Cause I don't like shooting at the back of a deer yeah. more times than more times than not. I end up putting that buck right underneath me and I don't like 10 yard shots. I don't like not being able to see the, the whole deer's body through the scope of my pin on the bow. It's hard for me to find exactly where the pin needs to be. It seems like I really prefer that like thirty yard shot. To be honest with you, yeah. But but that's not always the way it goes. But, <laughs> no, it uh, definitely is not. I yeah. One of the one of the main reasons why my stand is so low or was so low this year, I found a really good spot where where there's a. A younger sapling that has kind of grown a lot more wide than it has tall and the branches go out over the field edge but it creates almost an umbrella underneath me of cover for any deer that are looking my direction um, and so I've got branches that basically come up to the bottom of my tree stand and then overhead I have a lot of cover so I have this tiny little pocket in a tree and it was funny because as I was scoping out a tree to put my stand in, it just like stuck out like a sore thumb. I was like, that is a perfect, if I was going to put like a little tree fort up there for my kids, like I found the right spot for it. It's, it's just a nice little nook in the tree where I knew that I'd kind of have cover from all directions, but I'd still be able to get away with getting a shot at a, at several different points in the field. So, um, that was kind of my mentality for going that route. Now, the only issue with that is I, I don't have a lot of great spots that I could move even 30 or 40 yards down that, that field edge because of how tall and mature the trees are around. I just don't have a lot of young growth that's going to give me cover to set up um, anywhere within reasonable distance from where I'm currently at. Mm-hmm. 
one of my one of my best spots this year that I had a lot of action in. I was only eight foot off the ground, and oh, nice. I had does and different deer right to come right up underneath me and have no idea I was there. And in fact, I had one doe this year. I was heading back to that spot, and I was just getting to the tree, and I peeked across the field, and about a Oh, 100 yards across the field, there was a doe standing on the edge of a thicket. And she seen me and jumped into that thicket. So I scurried up the tree as fast as I could. And I wasn't even set up yet. I only went up eight foot, like I was saying. One stick and a tree branch is all it took me to get there. And before I was even set in that tree stand, that darn doe was already over, coming, looped around the other side of that bedding pocket she jumped into. And was coming over to investigate what she had seen. And I found that a lot this year in the last few years. I, our population of deer is, is crazy around here. We have a lot of deer per square mile. I, I can't even give you a number, but it's, we have a lot of deer here. And I don't know if that's part of the reason why I see what I see, but I have more does come and follow to see what I'm doing after they see me on my way out. And maybe it's part of the do with the conditioning, and I'll get even more talking about the conditioning I do to on on my hunting areas around here each year. But I, I think that that's probably a big part of it too. And every time, like like you were saying, deer don't have a problem with with hearing a chainsaw out in the woods. And a lot of times, fifteen minutes after you had left, that deer's over there. Why is that? Well, you just went out into that deer's house and changed it. Yeah. That's that deer. That's where that deer lives. You just went out there and changed it. That deer wants to come over there and see what's different, see what you did. And I'm constantly out there doing something, so I think that's a normal thing for them. And that's just kind of funny to me. And the the more I condition them, the the more of this stuff I see and the the way these deer act. And it's really backwards to the a lot of the normal ways you hear guys talk about hunting and and uh, I, I was the same way. I didn't never, never think I'd treat my hunting ground in the, in the manner that I treat it now. And how I, like I said, how I conditioned my deer. Yeah. And that all happened from, from an experience I had from hunting a neighboring farm. And I've never been real big into reading about hunting. I, until about a year ago, I never listened to a podcast never really read any articles all the learning i did from deer hunt was watching whitetails bounce away from me you know <laughs> <laughs> that, that was that was my learning experience the lessons i talk and listen to you. a lot of the yeah 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 that one sticks with you right there seeing that white tail bounce away <laughs> but uh and a lot of listening to the old guys in the neighborhoods and what what they had to say about one that that's but most of it was what I see when I was out there. And I think a lot of that resulted, like I said, the way that I grew up on. My dad didn't, my dad didn't do anything for me. My dad let me learn it on my own. And I think I pick up and see and understand more because of it. Because it was never done for me, I guess, if that makes any sense. Yeah. But, uh, so where was I going with that? So you were you were starting to get into uh, conditioning. Okay, so 
Oh, there was for quite a few years there where we left off a while back. I I was starting to target specific bucks, and in the midst of all that, there's this year and a half old bucket showed up one year, and he was probably darn near 15 inches wide, and he was almost all main beams, barely had two little points on on each end, and he he was barely a four point. But up until that point, I never really seen any really wide bucks on the farm. They were all pretty narrow and tall. So I was like, man, it'd be cool if that one made it, you know? And he ran the, the crap out of this one one area of the farm, this north side up and down this tree line. I'd just have pictures of him like crazy and see him almost every time I was out there hunting. It's like, man, that'd be cool if that one made it. The next year comes around, and in that same area, there's this 18-inch wide, 6.2 and a half. It's like, man, that's got to be that deer. And I'm pretty sure it is, and that's the only deer I've ever been able to follow from a year and a half old. It's so hard to so hard to recognize that year and a half to two and a half year old change. It's such oh, a big, yeah. drastic change, you know. And, but uh, so, anyways, this this two and a half, and he was he was all good, eighteen inches wide, and was short tines and eighteen inches wide. He was running that same area. It's like, man, you know that man, that that buck makes it a year or two more. He's going to be something pretty cool, you know. And so I seen him a few times that two and a half year old year and quite a few times not not as much as when he was a year and a half and the next year comes around and now he's three and a half and i only seen him a couple times that year and i only had a few pictures of him but he turned into he was probably right around 20 inches and he was a seven point and i i only seen him one time with my eyes that year and it was on a walk out and i'm walking up over a hill I peek over just as I'm cresting this hill and his eyeballs are on me already. He caught me before I got him, but he's about 150 yards away. And I've never done this before, but for some reason it just clicked in my head. I'm going to bend down and start picking up some sticks. I bent down and started picking up some sticks and throwing them into the tree line and just acted like I was out working on the farm. Like this deer probably seen me and my dad do in the past, you know? Yeah. And as I'm doing that, I'm keeping my eye on him over there. And he just stands there and watches me. And I'm throwing sticks into the tree line and dinking around, making it look like I'm doing something. And he stood there for all of it. It seemed like a while. It was probably only a minute or so. And then he just kind of turned around and didn't even, didn't even run. Just maybe just made one bound over the, the fence and just slowly walked off into the bedding area. I was like, all right, you know, no harm, no foul there. I don't think he was too, he didn't seem too worked up over the situation, but that was the only time I seen him that year. So every year it was a trend that I was seeing less and less of this buck. And the primary bedding area from for the side of the farm that he was on was across the road, across the road from my dad's farm, drops off to a creek. It's just the greatest habitat you, the whitetail have around here. Usually holds the bigger bucks in the area. In the past, when we never seen anything over a year and a half, that was that was where the bigger buck in the neighborhood would get shot, you know. So anyways, I started kind of figuring to myself, man, if I don't get permission across the road, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to shoot this buck. 
So it just so happened to work out in my favor that the year before that, the guy who had hunted that farm for years, he built the the old couple that lived there, he built their house and did some extras and got permission to hunt after that. And he got fed up with these old people out on this farm constantly. They, they built their house, oh, quarter mile off the road on a half mile deep, 80, and it dropped off right behind the house about 35 feet. And there was a pond at the bottom and right behind the pond was just a, a giant cattail swamp that turned into a stick swamp and on the back side of that was a was a creek so great great whitetail habitat yeah and he, he got fed up with these old old couple that lived there constantly being out dinking around by their pond and she had shoot 20 some horses and it was mostly pasture everywhere that wasn't swamp and woods and She's constantly out with her horses, and he he got fed up saying, you know, that they were screwing up the hunt over there. He was done. So the opening was there to to go and ask, and I'm horrible about asking to hunt. I (laughs) I hate walking up to somebody's door, man. It's just like life and death for me. And, (laughs) And death usually seems like the outcome in my head for some reason. But I knew that I was pretty, I was I was pretty fixated on this buck. I wanted this buck bad. And I knew that if I was going to shoot him, it was going to have to be there. So I went over there. Sure enough, got the permission to be there. And my good buddy I do most of the hunt with, we we were talking about it when I told him, I, man, I finally got permission, you know. It's a good chance I'll get that buck. He's like, where do where you think you're going to get him? Back, back in the swamp or on the creek? Or It's like, no, I and this was just going over, you know, times of me seeing him from the road and whatnot of the areas that he was running over there. Cause at that point I didn't, I never had a trail camera there. And, uh, I said, no, nah, I think I'm going to kill him up in this front woods. And I, I, I make maple syrup and I tap these people's woods and, uh, I already kind of, you know, obviously anytime I'm out in, in a woods anywhere, I'm looking at where I'd be deer hunting in that woods. And, yep. So I already had some trees picked out and whatnot, and uh, sure enough, I, that was the, that was the lucky spot. I shot him out of that tree that year, and uh, it was October 29th, and I hadn't seen him all season long yet. I hadn't even got a picture of him, because I did put cameras out there after I got permission, and I didn't get permission until October 4th, I think it was, when I finally mustered up the ambition to go over there and ask so i was well behind the game other than knowing the farm from being on it for other reasons throughout the years yeah and uh man i i just stuck to it and uh i uh i was lucky enough to shoot that buck that year he was four and a half he ended up being barely an eight point i don't even know i think one of his g3s might not even be scorable because it's wider than it is tall and it's okay. about almost an inch and a half, but it's so bladed out. Anyways, meat buck, he was 22 inches inside, and he carried his mass through his main beams. He had really good mass. I think as a six-point, he had, I think, 38 inches of mass. Jeez. So that's, you know, if you get up there 40 inches of mass, that's what a lot of, you know, your booners have. Yeah. So. He was a good buck, man. I was I was pumped, and that was uh, 
my second four and a half year old buck, I actually had shot one, uh, a four and a half, 140 inch 10 point a couple years before that. But, uh, that, that buck, I didn't have any knowledge of before I shot him. So this one was pretty special. I watched him from a year and a half all the way to a four and a half and, uh, was able to, was able to make it happen. And that was great. That was awesome. But what was even better about that season is what I learned that season what I learned about deer and how we can condition them. So that, that first year I, I made it back into that swamp and back onto that Creek bed that I was talking about a few times, just, just cause I wanted to hunt that property my whole life. And it's just so nasty and just awesome back there. I had to be back there, you know, yeah. I found out that first year that, man, I'm just screwing it up by coming back here. Why don't I just stay out where these old people are constantly out screwing around where the deer are totally used to them being, but just step over that pasture edge into the woods or the thicket somewhere. Why don't I start that? And man, I I just, you wouldn't believe the nature in which these deer would act. I would, I would jump up three and a half year old bucks on the way out and see that buck later on that afternoon. (laughs) I would, there was a buck that I was chasing that year and out of all the bucks I've ever chased, he had the smallest core area I've ever, I've ever seen one have so far. Normally I find them on about a three square mile area and that's, that's just normally they're all different. They're all individuals. That's for sure. But this deer barely left about a 200 acre area and I only I'm pretty confident in that because I seen that buck 26 times that season. Jeez. I'd see that buck on a morning hunt. Then I'd be walking out and kick him up on an evening hunt. Then see him later on that evening, just before dark on that same evening hunt. I'd see that deer three different times sometimes in one day. Yeah. Just crazy. But the craziest thing about it is every time I seen that buck, he'd be doing something different. He never, I've never once watched him walk down the same trail. Never once found him laying in the same spot. It's just, he used every bit of that area. I'm like, man, what, what is it that makes these deer, you know, so comfortable with this? Is it just because of the, the, the habitat so rich here or what is it? Well, I came to the conclusion that it's definitely the presence of the human beings here. Most people think in a high-pressured area, you need to be even more careful. Well, in a high-pressured area, you've got a lot more people, obviously. Mm -hmm. Usually a lot smaller farms. All year long, constantly, there's the kid neighbor kid riding his quad out back. The other neighbor kid's playing around back here. We've got a lot of Amish in my community, so they're out on their farms all year long. And I found that I think that it's even uh, the conditioning is even a better scenario for a pressured area. You leave an area untouched all year long and then try to sneak out into a small 40 acre farm, let's <laughs> say, or even an 80 and them deer not know you're there. I mean, yeah, I, I, I work on my, uh, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for here? My, uh, um, uh, my entrance, how I, Oh yeah. Your approach like to my, your stand. my 
my approach. There's the word I'm looking for. Sorry. Thank no, you. I, I work on my approach. That's one of the biggest things I think of my way into the stand. And I still, still not perfect, you know? So I, I said, you know, I've been hunting this careful way my whole life here and it's worked out pretty good for me. I've been pretty successful, way more successful than I've ever thought I'd be on this farm, you know? And it's like, man, look at it over here. Why can't I do that right across the road? So that's exactly what I did for the next few years. I'd, I'd run the cameras, find the buck I wanted to shoot, the biggest buck I had in the area. And I'd usually narrow it down to about a 10 acre area where I figure I got the best chances of running across this deer. And all summer long, three, four, five times a week, I'll go out to that area. I'm not going out to the bedding just outside of them areas that I expect him to be in. I'm going out to the areas I'm going to hunt, the field edges, the food plots. If I don't have a reason to go out there, I'll just go out there anyways. Mill around, leave some of my scent there, you know, swap some trail camera cards, check out the food plots, whatever. Like I said, if I ain't got a reason to, I just go there. And leave my like i said leave my scent there let the deer know i'm going to be there hunting in an area where you have lots of deer there's going to be a lot of deer in what they'd call the satellite beds yeah because not every deer is going to be in the sweet spot because there's so many darn deer so it's so hard to get out without jumping deer and them running through the mile away from you you know and that that was the scenario throughout most of my hunting if i kicked up some deer they'd tail would bounce and they'd be tearing ass through the woods or back into the bedding area into the thicket and i definitely believe a mature deer is going to know that obviously something kicked that deer back in that direction yeah by conditioning the deer i'm not so much conditioning the deer i'm trying to kill i am in part ways with scent and whatnot the scent i'm leaving in areas but i'm not really i'm not expecting him to see me and forget about me but I want these other deer, the younger deer that are out in the, the satellite areas to, to see me, then forget about me. Yep. And how do I do that? By going out there constantly all year long, because constantly all summer I'm there. This guy's there. Now all of a sudden he's gone. Let's go back. You know, and the same thing when I, when it gets to hunting season, if I kick up a deer on my way out now, it'll run over to the closest tree line or woods edge and just stop at it. And they'll watch me walk to my tree stand. Hmm. And I'll usually set it up to where I climb up the opposite side of trees where these deer most likely are going to run to, which will be the same area that the deer that I'm hunting is going to be coming from. So uh, it's the best to stay on the opposite side of the tree climbing up anyways. Yeah. So I'll climb up that tree, stay real still for the first 10 minutes, and that deer forgets. That deer, uh, that deer don't know I climbed up that tree. That deer thinks it was like the rest of the year. Oh, that guy was here again. Now he's gone. Let's go back. Yep. So them deer that I kicked up, instead of running through the whole mile, tearing ass, letting everything know that something's coming out out here after us, they just run off a little ways just to where they could just see me. I climb up, disappear, and they think I'm gone. And I found that out hunting them on that old, that old couple's farm there. So I started really watching them deer when I was starting to become really intrigued with the fact that these mature does and even mature bucks 
I would kick them up and then all of a sudden they'd be coming back shortly after I was in the stand. So I started really watching them when I kick these deer up and I'd get to my tree stand, I'd climb up, look over my shoulder, look around the tree, however it would be. And, uh, and I'd watch these deer and they'd go, they'd run back into the thicket to just to the point to where they could barely see out. So same thing, I can barely see them. And I'd watch them pace back and forth. And after enough time of watching it, I realized what they're doing. They're running back till they can barely see me and they're waiting until they can't see me no more. And when they can't see me moving around anymore, they'll slowly start making their way back out to the edge. Just like that old couple that would be out there, go down to the pond and dink around for a little while. They'd wait back there for them to leave. And when they left, they'd make their way back out. Dang. So, like I said, I started doing the same thing over here. And, man, I so the 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 oldest buck I ever shot, he was, he was six, six and a half years old. And I uh, ran into that deer seven times before I shot him. Two times I seen him. The other times were trail camera pictures that I'd get. I had a cell camera that year. <clears throat> One time I got a picture of him walking right in front of my tree stand seven minutes after I left it. <laughs> One time I had him walk in front of my tree stand when I'm still in it, but it just got dark. It was just too late. I could tell it was him. He walked right over the path I entranced in where I had to kill this deer, the trees, the only trees I had to set up, I had to walk through my food plot to get there. Oh, dang. So instead of walking around the edges of the food plot, one side or the other, to get around to the back side of it, I'd walk right through the dead center of it, straight at the tree stand. So that I figured if, if I do this and he comes in from one side or the other, I'm going to be able to get a shot at him before he gets to my scent. Yeah, it's something I definitely pay attention to. That deer crossed my scent path two times that year, never lifted his head. <laughs> Dang, he's a six-year-old deer. Yeah, why? Why is that? Because he smelt me all year long. It was nothing to him to smell my scent. It was totally normal. Man, it is so it four good times to... a week. It's so good to hear you saying all of this because now I don't feel as crazy for the tactics that I use. I mean, I have done, I've done a lot of the same, aside from food plot prep, a lot of the same conditioning tactics that you're talking about. I mean, I, I go out to the property at least twice a week, every week. Normally, I'm walking all over along the field edges. I, I set up trail cameras all along the field edges to try to get anything that might be coming in or out of the bedding area. And I don't do anything for scent. You know, if if I yeah, me neither. If I go out there and all I have is tennis shoes on, well, I'm walking out there in my tennis shoes that I've been wearing all day or that I've been sweating in or working in. Um, I don't spray down. I don't it like none of that matters to me. And then I just go and check my cameras. And I'm telling you, I tell I tell other people this and they look at me like I'm a crazy person. I I say, I've I've been sitting there with my laptop in hand or on on like uh on a fence post. There's some big like actual timber fence posts out there, and I'll put my mm-hmm. my uh laptop on that as I'm thumbing through trail camera pictures. And I've looked over and had deer come out of the 
out of the woods 40 yards from me and stand there and look at me. Yep. And I'm like, I'm telling yep. you, these deer know that I'm in here. They know to expect to smell me. And at first it wasn't like that. The first year, so I moved back to color or to Missouri from Colorado uh, almost three years now, three years ago now. And that first year, getting back out to the same hunting property I used to hunt, the deer, you could see it. You, you'd look, see them on trail camera, on videos, and they'd walk across my scent path, and they'd get a little spooked. And then as the weeks went on, they'd get less and less spooked to the point where they would never even never even flinch if they, if they crossed my path or if they came up to the trail camera. It just didn't bug them anymore. And I... I swear by that trick. I think the only thing I need to really work on now in order to connect with some of these bucks is honing in exactly uh, where I hang my tree stand. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's all I do, man. I use them trail cameras like you do. Uh, I'll have an area of the farm that I'm in the past. I've most, I've seen this deer the most and I'll litter, like I said, about a 10 acre area usually with five or six cameras all in that small area, find the areas that he comes in and out of the most where he crosses onto the farm, whatnot. And that'll have a lot of reasoning on where I position my food plots for the year. If I need to keep the, the standard food plots that I have in the same spot every year, or if I need to add one into a small corner or whatnot. And, and then I'll litter that spot with tree stands and, like you, like you were talking earlier, you just, you know, you're not fortunate to do that in every situation, like your field edge, you said you were hunting there and you can't really get into any other trees, but if possible, I'll put a tree stand in every tree that I feel I can get into in that area. And if, if there's not a, if there's not a lot of trees I can be in, I will set up ground spots and you know, just like I, just like I was saying, I'll spend all, all my time out in that area that summer and let all the the deer in the satellite areas know that I'm going to be there. Let the, the buck I'm after, let him get used to that scent being there. And, and it's just normal for them. They're, they're not going to move out because of it. And I, I, I can't say for every area, but I know that in my area that it, it don't run them out. We have so many deer that I believe they can't just run off to a new area that isn't already inhabited by deer, yeah. if that makes sense. And then you also have the fact that we have so much pressure and that deer's never lived in an area where it didn't get kicked up. Yep. Why not just stay where I'm most comfortable and where it's worked out the longest for me? And, and that's, that's what I find. I, I haven't ran a deer out yet, and I, I, I molest them all summer long. I'm out there yeah. constantly, you know? Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I hope a lot of people look at the, or listen to this and realize that they don't have to go to the extremes of never going in. And that's one thing that I always said. It, it would be tough for me to hunt a property that I had to stay out of except for those peak days where all the conditions are the most right to kill a deer because I love, I love all types of hunting. I mean, I like getting out there and frog gigging and coyote hunting. I like chasing after squirrels and rabbits and a lot of, I mean, I do all of that on that same 230 acre chunk of land that I deer hunt on. And I could, 
as much as I love deer hunting, I couldn't give up access to that property year round just to get a crack at a buck. Right. That's me too. I enjoy being out there so much. I hunt pretty much every day during bow season. I will usually, our bow season's uh, 45 days from October 1st to uh, November 15th. And I'll usually have close to 60 sits in, in that 45 days. Nice. I love to deer hunt. I love to be out there. It's, it's, you know, short time, you know, 45 days out of the whole year is a a short time to short time you have at going after them. I, I would like to spend every day I can, and I'm blessed with living on the farm that I hunt. So I'm here constantly. It's not a big deal. I'm not away from the family to go hunt and I'm still getting back to the house to put my kids to bed and all, all that good stuff, you know? Yep. So yeah, that, uh, conditioning them deer, man. I, I hope a lot of people listen to it too. I think it's a great strategy. I think it's overlooked in the high pressured areas, especially because you, the normal, reasoning is we need to be more careful in a high pressured area but i think you can actually get away with more if you condition and treat it right if i didn't go out there all summer long like i do i i wouldn't be able to hunt it like i do yep i I wouldn't be able to go to that same 10 acre i got 200 acres to hunt here in most years i'll barely ever touch an area outside 10 acres and i'll hunt every day wow that's that's awesome and And I mean, you obviously have the success to to prove your strategies are working, uh, and and it sounds like you've got it dialed in quite a bit to where you used to only see year and a half old deer, and now you're targeting specifically four and a half year old and older, and that's in Michigan, yep. in a place where people, a lot of people, I'm guessing even in your neighborhood or in your county, would say that's not possible or good luck shooting one except for every 10 to 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. And that used to be me. Them same words used to come out of my mouth on this exact same farm. And I've killed bucks that I just never thought I'd even ever have a chance at around here. I mean, I thought there was, you know, if I could ever get to 130 inch deer, I'd be the happiest cat around and I could never pass that deer up. One of my biggest bucks, he was a five and a half <clears throat> giant bodied buck. He dressed out at 225. Jeez. I passed that deer up at four and a half. <laughs> and I didn't know he was four and a half when I passed him. I'm not going to lie about that. I I uh, figured all this out through trail camera pictures afterwards, after I passed him at four and a half. And uh, I didn't have another shot at him that year, and I probably wouldn't have shot him anyways, even after I figured that out, because he broke most of his tines off. By January 1st, he had one brow tine on one side and one G2 on the opposite side. <laughs> All oh main beam, he broke everything else off. <laughs> and uh, he, he was a good buck. I had him at six yards, and he was facing right towards me, and just didn't look real heavy and I wasn't really sure who he was and there was a really good buck that year that I wanted to kill and uh I uh I just decided that I wasn't going to shoot him and he turns around and walks away from where he was at six yards 
and he's turning his head back and forth, looking in every direction and just showing off that rack to me. It's about time I realized I couldn't shoot him anymore. I wanted to, but <laughs> it worked out good because I shot him the very next year. And yeah, man, things have just blown up since since I was a kid. Since you know the things that I thought could never happen, I uh, that six and a half year old deer. I watched that deer for five years. I seen him for the first time when he was two and a half, and he was probably about probably only uh he was probably only a, maybe a ninety at the tops a hundred inch buck at two and a half, but his brow tines were the exact same height of his g twos real long brow tines and so every year there was this buck with the brow tines level with his g twos and made it real easy to watch him. I watched that deer for five years. So that's awesome. That's, that's another real special one for me. I uh, he uh, for the first few years, I'd only see that deer either once or twice real early, and then I'd see him a whole lot just before the first of the year. And I didn't see him even on camera or by eye during throughout the season, really. And then when he was a four and a half, I didn't know this until after I shot him, but he was four and a half. Uh, a guy about a mile away shot him with a gun, just took some hair and barely had a couple drops of blood, he said. And his that was four and a half. So his five and a half and six and a half year, he spent a lot more time down my way. So I think I was right on the outside edge of his core area. And seems how he had a, you know, traumatic incident like being shot happen. I think he shifted that core area over to the, an outside edge that he felt was more safe at that time. Because I seen him, seen him a lot more. After I shot him, that guy contacted me through Facebook because he seen the pictures of him and he, 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 you couldn't mistake this buck. He ended up having twelve inch brow tines when I shot him. Oh man. It, that so that that was a cool deal he was a great buck that five and a half i was just talking about there that dressed out 225 he was a 164 inch 11 point that same year in the youth season i shot that buck that five and a half on october 2nd and i think the youth season was about 10 days before that my my son shot the buck i was going to be after that year but uh was glad he got him that was a 172 inch uh 14 point that we called muley because he had a big old fork on one g2 that was super deep that looked like a mule deer fork so yeah man i mean the you know the things that most people including myself said could never happen here in michigan i've i've been able to accomplish and uh you know the biggest of all the deer i've shot has been after i started conditioning deer after my experiences on that neighboring farm and and what i seen and learned from that and applied it on my own farm where where i had never done this before and it just it's blown up it's it's been great it's, it's that's so that's dear. so awesome to hear and i really do hope a lot of people will will reevaluate how they're treating their hunting land um reevaluate how often they can use it because i've always thought you know it's a shame when someone has 
an amazing piece of land that they could be out four-wheeling on and hiking around on or walking their dog or taking their kids out and, you know, squirrel and rabbit and dove hunting. And they don't do it just because they're afraid that the deer are going to get bumped out. When yeah, in reality, or that or, I think or, or maybe they're go ahead. Sorry. Or, or maybe their trail camera pictures tell them that, you know, this deer's mostly here throughout the rut. I'm, I'm going to wait till the rut to go after them. Yeah. I, I'm there all times of year. There's so many scenarios, especially in a highly pressured area. We have so many hunters on any evening your neighbors could kick a deer up your way. They ain't yeah. got to like kick him up and he runs your way, but they could walk by him. That deer catches their scent. He waits till about dark. Is he going to go their way or is he going to come my way? Yeah. He's going to come my way. And that's another really big strategy that I really key on. I, I try to watch my neighbors as much as I watch the deer. I try to, try to pay attention to my neighbors and not like I used to, I used to just bitch about my neighbors and how they ruined my hunting and how I could never be any better because of them. But now I, 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 I watch them to see what they're doing, see how they access their hunting stands, see where they're blowing their wind when they are hunting. And I, I play off of that big time. That's like I said, I probably watch my neighbors more at least as much or maybe even more than I watch the deer. That's awesome. Because they're they're like a pinball in a pinball machine just bouncing off all the other hunters around <laughs> here, you know. Master navigators, like I was talking, these deer are moving. They are moving. Just because you don't see them doesn't mean that deer isn't moving and doesn't mean that he's not in the area. Yep. They're just so good at using the terrain and the habitat to to move around, to move through these areas. So I, I, you know, like I, I have a neighbor that they, they drive their, their gator back to go hunt. They got a quite a ways from their farm and they got to go back three quarters of a mile to get to their good hunting. They drive their gator all the way back only about 150 yards behind my property, then drive it from one side all the way to the other side and park it right on the edge of this thicket. And with our predominant southwest wind, they walk around the southwest side of this thicket, blowing their wind into the thicket the whole time, and walk around to this back corner. There's that's that's pretty darn pretty darn good spot. I see why they want to be there, but I've figured out that they don't really pay attention to their wind. They park their gator right next to where the deer lay. So, is that deer going to get up and go his way? Or if that deer gets up and moves tonight, is he going to come my way? Most of the time that deer, because of that, is just probably going to stay to that spot, maybe get up and mill around in a one-acre area before it gets dark and moves out. But other nights, there's going to be influencers like weather or moon or other things that are going to get that deer moving a little bit earlier. Yeah. Still, that deer is going to know them people came out there. He's going to know them people are there. Where's that deer going to go? their direction or my direction he's going to come in my direction so i i watch my neighbors and that was uh that was the thing that i learned quite a few years back even before conditioning the farm to the north of my dad's 80 back when we just had the 80 uh was a six it's a 60 acre farm and pretty much was a sanctuary all bow season long the guy who who owns it, he, he'd gun hunt, 
but nobody bow hunted it and it was about 30 acres crp and 30 acres woods and he kept it uh he kept it logged pretty good so there was it was quite thick and held a lot of deer and it was a 60 acre sanctuary all my deer would come off of his farm i'd set up for the deer coming off of his farm i'd blow my wind into my own farm because the bucks are usually on his farm well that that guy bought uh bought a uh party store in the in our community and he started becoming buddies with lots of people in the community and before i knew it there's three or four or five guys all hunting at once and they're fighting with each other. I'd watch guys walk back to go hunting and then there'd be another guy show up and he'd walk back a little later. And then one guy would be pissing and moaning and bitching and walking back up because the other guy just screwed him up. And <laughs> I just said, man, this is going to ruin my hunt and this is going to be the end of it. I've always, you know, they're going to screw up my great bedding area. It ain't mine, but the bedding area I set up on and, my hunting's going to be no good now. Over that summer, I thought to myself, am I going to let these people dictate my hunting? Are they, I know there's deer here. Are they, are they, am I going to let them dictate what I kill? No. How am I going to deal with this then? Well, they all accessed his property up and down the the tree line in between the property, property line. So I said, well, you know what? I'm going to access this farm up and down that same tree line. Every time I hunt here, I'm going up and down the tree line. They are because they're already screwing it up. Why don't I use that? And I'll branch off into my farm, wherever I'm deciding to hunt to that night and I'll blow my wind at them. So I totally switched my whole scheme up, blew my wind the opposite way that I've always blown it on their farm. And that year is, that was the year actually I killed that uh, 140 inch 10 point I was telling you there. Um, he came off my dad's farm, <laughs> didn't come off the neighbors, and that worked out for me. So playing your neighbors is huge. Yeah. You know, you, you might have a neighbor that out there screwing things up at different times, and, and you think it's just ruining everything for you. But like we're like I was just talking, them deer are master navigators. They're so good at sliding through and in between everybody that's out there. So if you do things right, get in there, and nothing's seen you get in there, and you got in there clean and safe. You you, you should be good. It don't mean there ain't going to be any deer in that area anymore. Use your neighbors. Figure out, you know, that that's a, that's a weakness. Most people use that as a weakness. It's my neighbors do this and that. I'm not going to be able to accomplish this because of that. Well, take what they're doing and try to make it into a positive. Figure out how you can turn what they're doing to ruin your hunting into what they can do to positively affect your hunting. And yeah. That's been a great strategy. Well, and it's funny that people think that neighbors that are bad hunters are going to ruin their hunting. But in all reality, you should you should be pretty happy if your neighbors are really bad and sloppy hunters, because yes, odds exactly. are they're not going right. to kill the big buck, and uh, exactly it's going to give yep. you way more of a chance to get after him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's amazing, man. I mean, it's right in front of our face constantly, but sometimes it's just things are the exact opposite of what they seem or what they've been portrayed to be. Yeah. And that's, that's, 
really honestly what I've found out. Man, it's it's just I, I wouldn't do it any other way on my own farm anymore. Yeah. The public and the public I haven't really found to be a whole lot different. Everybody talks like deer step on the public ground and they're all of a sudden this different deer that does everything a lot differently and I haven't really found that. In southern Michigan anyways, all our public's pretty darn pressured. There's squirrel hunters running all over. There's people just walking. There's people out there throughout the summer. So what is that essentially doing? That's conditioning deer. Yep. It's, it's doing the same thing I do on my own farm. Now, it is different. I'm not saying it's, it's not different, but the same scheme can work. It's just applied a little differently. And I wasn't I wouldn't successful on public last year there, this, not this last season, it was the season before. I did put myself in front of a couple really good bucks and things just didn't work out. But uh, in, in that, I find quite a bit of success in that. I'm pretty happy with that. But uh, it's not, I don't really find it to be any, any different, really. These deer, and the thing about public is, and all the public in southern Michigan anyway is just thicker can thicker and can be yeah just nasty in the greatest habitat you can find and then deer are really good at navigating through it they have more tools for navigation in them situation most of it's hilly you know all of it's just thick as can be even the hardwoods they've done a great job here in michigan and on their logging their timber uh, that the undergrowth and most of all even the hardwoods is just super thick so I, I believe it's the same thing there. I, I don't, uh, I'm sure there's plenty of people calling bullshit on that right now if they're listening. But, uh, but, uh, I guess I, I'm, this year I'm, I'm looking to find success there. I, I don't really have a buck I have much history with right now. And that's what really drives me on the home farm. So I think, uh, I'm going to go pretty hard on public again this next season and, and try to accomplish something on some new grounds. Yeah. Well, I'm excited for this episode to air and I really hope that I get some feedback, some emails in the coming seasons of people trying to put this strategy into use. Uh, because I think, I think that the hunting can really change like it did on your farm for other people. If they, if they try to try to, do some unconventional or I guess unconventional as far as mainstream hunting media goes, uh, strategies to get after some big bucks. So, um, well, we're, we're coming up on an hour and 45 minutes. I feel like I could probably talk in and pick your brain more about your hunting strategy and what you've done differently for another two hours, but I do want to be respectful. <laughs> I want to be respectful of your time and I want to give you a chance to share with the listeners where they can find uh, more about you where they can follow along or maybe see some of your success. Yeah, they can find me on Instagram. Brian Dunlap nine is, uh, the, the Instagram name. Um, and that's about all the social media I really use. Okay. You know, they could contact me there, check it out. I don't have a whole lot on it yet. I'm kind of new to Instagram. Not a super techie guy. I'm not really into social media like crazy, but I am. I, I am definitely becoming more of a part of it here, and uh, 
that'd be how you check me out anyways. Nice. Well, Brian, man, I really appreciate you hopping on, sharing your perspective, sharing, sharing your tips and tricks and, uh, just a totally different way to go about it. And like I said, it definitely validated, um, my mindset and my strategies over the past couple seasons. And I'm looking forward to taking a few of the things that you told, uh, talked about today and putting them to use on the farm that I hunt. And hopefully I can start seeing the same results that you did. Yeah, I mean, I hope you can find some success with it and anybody else too. I, I think it's a really, really useful tool, the conditioning of the deer and, uh, it's been nothing but, you know, great success for me since I've started it. That's awesome. Well, Hey, uh, good luck this year. Hopefully, um, when you try out some of your new endeavors on public land or hopefully you start seeing a buck and, and can start patterning him and conditioning him. Um, maybe one will, will come off a neighboring property or a little farther out that, that you haven't encountered yet. I'll be looking, <laughs> I'll be waiting and watching for sure. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Brian. All right. Hey, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to be on here with you. And that is going to wrap it up for today's show, man. I, I, I've got like a new passion right now and a new excitement for getting out to the deer woods, for going out and walking the property. I've been doing, I've been saying this for a long time, like I couldn't have property if the only thing I could do is deer hunt on it. I just love being out. I love, I love walking around. I love seeing the other animals. I like, I like shed hunting and squirrel hunting and rabbit hunting and all of it. And so the strategies that he's using, the fact that he's out there all the time and he's he's conditioning these deer to be used to human presence, I think is a strategy that a lot of people, if they just stick with it, here's the thing. If you try it short term, it's not going to work. If you're out there for like two weeks before season, if you're out there, you know, a couple times here and there, it's not going to work. If you stay consistent with it and you get out on your hunting property and you do that, it might be a couple seasons before you really really notice a big difference with the animal behavior and their response to your presence but I think it will pay off I mean I'm pretty confident and obviously it has for him I don't know that he actually mentioned it in the show I think he's killed 33 bucks now I'm pretty sure that's right and uh, only a, a small handful of those were year and a half old deer uh, his progression happened pretty quick and it seems like he He's found his sweet spot there in Michigan. Not a lot of people would believe that this podcast was from a guy from Michigan. Like, that that seems unheard of. Anyways, sorry, I'm pumped if you can't tell already. But hopefully you guys are getting out and exploring, adventuring, gearing up for turkey season. There's a lot about to come down the line for outdoorsmen and women across the country, whether it's shed hunting or turkey season or fishing. Um spring is almost here so get ready and until next time always choose adventure and god bless